and welcome to Word Up, a series of podcasts hosted by Oxford University Press with Helen Prince and guests. Really excited today to welcome to our podcast, Penny Ray Bigger. Penny has an incredible life that I'm so excited to explore. Um, she grew up in London, did an anthropology degree with University of Sussex, uh, spent 10 years teaching English in Jerusalem, and then did a master's while she was in Israel. She has been, from 2007, involved with a number of social, number of social enterprises, including The Key, uh, where she was a founding director, including being the co-founder of the BAME Ed Network and part of the Lifter EdTech. Incredible. I was having a quick look at some of their stuff that, that they do. That's a really interesting area. And is also on the advisory board for Teacher Toolkit. So Penny, huge and very warm welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. It's lovely to be here. So what an exciting, interesting background and life you've led. Tell us a little bit about you, because you've travelled and worked abroad really extensively. Yeah, well, I haven't travelled and worked abroad extensively. I've kind of travelled and then ended up backpacking around and staying for over 10 years. So that was a kind of (laughs) mistake, but a very good mistake. I always think you learn from your mistakes and I learned so much. Um, yeah, so I did. I spent about 10 years teaching in Jerusalem in some really interesting schools, and I did my PGCE there. And I was, um, it specialized in kind of democratic and alternative education. So I was able to spend the year of my PGCE visiting all sorts of wild and wonderful schools and seeing different ways of teaching, which I think gave me a really good grounding of how I wanted to teach. I remember thinking that when I was with Ofsted, thinking we all try and do the same thing, but wow, do we, we have so many different ways of trying to get to a similar goal. Yeah, definitely. So what you're doing now, so what was that journey like from from those teaching experience to what to what you do now? Tell me a bit about that journey. Yeah, so um, we came back to England in 2007. Um, my partner wanted to do a postdoctorate here and our kids were two and five. I quickly realised I wouldn't be able to get a teaching job in England because, um, y- you know, my qualifications were kind of sniffed at and yeah I was sort of applying for things and people going "Mm, you might be able to do a bit of supply or something so I happened to see this pilot thing called the key um, and applied for it Mm. and yeah got that job and sort of started my incredible journey into the world of startups Uh, and it, it was an incredible seven and a half years of learning growing and uh set me up really well for what I've been doing since well, do you know, I don't think we can imagine a world without the key now, <laughs> you know, both as a, as a teacher and a governor. They're just such an invaluable resource. Well, yeah, we always used to say we wanted to make it uh, absolutely irresistible, you know, and that uh, people would say that they instead of Googling something, they would key something. So I think we might have achieved that for school leadership and school governorship. That's clever. I like that. <laughs> and you're, inv- you're involved in quite a few voluntary roles as well. Yeah, so um, I'm one of the co-founders and a trustee of the Black, Asian and Minority Ethnic Educators Network, the BAME Ed Network, um, and that takes up quite a bit of time. And I'm also a school governor at a primary school near me, one form entry little school, and I'm on a trust board for a multi-academy trust um, in the south of London 
as well. So it keeps you very busy. Tell us about the the title BAME Ed because mm. you know there's we have we have untold knots that we tie ourselves in when we come to trying to get the right language and it's vital that we do Mm. so to explore that for us yeah so we started up um nearly four years ago and it kind of came as the result of a Twitter conversation between um Alana and Amjad Uh, Alana was then a deputy head teacher and Amjad was an assistant head teacher and they were kind of joshing about who would be least likely to become a head teacher in the next couple of years um, <laughs> because of the obvious barriers um, that black and Asian people find it within the education sector and um, at the time there was women ed um, and LGBT ed and so we we kind of thought oh let's set up a something ed And what we thought about the term BAME was being used um, as as the kind of way to trawl and haul in data from Black, Asian and minority ethnic people. And within that catch-all, there are so many different people. So I would be counted in that as well, potentially because I'm Jewish. um, And so I might fall under the minority ethnic side of things but as somebody who's racialized as white I'm gonna you know have very different experience to maybe my black or Asian colleagues Mm. so we actually sort of used it um, on purpose to say this is such a massive capture of a wide range of people and a wide range of lived experience that it's inadequate and so we wanted to catch all of the people together and then separate out sort of show explore and um, amplify the kind of lived experiences of each of the people and take an intersectional view so you know if you're if you're female and black then your your situation might be different to somebody who is male and black Um, and you know if you're gay your situation will be different so there's there's lots of intersectionality in that so Mm. we were kind of using it as a sort of not tongue in cheek, but a sort of to show that. Now, what's happened is that the term BAME is being rejected. So we are at a bit of a crossroads where we're thinking we have to go through that long explanation to explain why we're still using yeah. that name. But I think we all strongly feel that until there's an alternative, we're not going to take time thinking about a different name. We're going to stick to our purpose and our purpose is really strong. Um, and our aims uh, you know we feel like we're achieving our aims and we're doing good work so we're just trying to focus on that for the moment and not be distracted for now but there are there are other terms which are more satisfactory for what people are trying to explore like global majority I like that one because people it makes especially white people go huh oh oh yeah actually white people are the minority Um, and I also like to use the term minoritized people because it's about the act of Mm. being made to feel as if you're a minority and a minority issue and a minority concern yeah but anyway that's the network fascinating conversation i i was reading recently that um something sadiq khan said he said um i'm a proud londoner a brit european of pakistani heritage a muslim he said, we all have multiple layers of identity and that's what makes us who we are. Yeah, definitely. And I think I think there's a massive confusion. I see it a lot. People post things saying, you know, children don't 
aren't racist and we've got to stop teaching children racism. But I feel that what people are inferring there is through talking about race, we're somehow making people racist. And I really strongly feel that through celebrating who you are, what your heritage is, and through not trying to ignore and be colorblind or or whatever mm. the phrases are we're teaching children about you know the the wide range of human experience and i think it, it is important to you know treat everybody as humans but it is also important not to erase people by saying oh no i don't i don't see that and i just treat everyone the same and and also you know racism and and the construction of race it's been constructed for a particular purpose and it has been with us for a while so you can't just suddenly switch it off Mm. you know you can't just suddenly decide oh actually now we're going to do things differently we do have to deconstruct that and we do have to dismantle some of the structural racisms that are inherent in a lot of our lives it's it's such an interesting idea isn't it is it about confidence are we trying to equip our young people with the confidence to explore that because maybe we're we're actually quite nervous now to to get things wrong and and to have the wrong vocabulary and the wrong maybe we need to help our young people have a confidence to explore these issues do you know what i think uh, i don't think we need to help our young people with anything on this i think they need to help us and i think they are helping us i know that my own teenage children really hold me to account you know our dinner times are really interesting because they're not frightened of it and they're not frightened of issues uh, around identity and who we are whether that's race whether that's gender all sorts of things they are very clued up and we kind of diss young people and you know talk about they're addicted to TikTok and my children have learned so much from TikTok not just you know funny dances but um which actually were really fun during the beginning of lockdown um but also around race some great recipes my oldest who had no interest in cooking now cooks a couple of times a week so awesome. I don't think TikTok. we need to help them with anything I think they are holding yeah. us to account I love that that's brilliant I love that uh, and I'm sure you're right you know they keep us young and they keep us vibrant and full of the the willingness to be reflective and think and you know see things from another perspective that you know I'm sure I'm sure our young people keep us young in that regard Possibly. I don't know. Mine keep telling me I'm an old fart. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're not. That's that's also true. I think I probably get a bit of that from mine as well. They keep us in in our places. (laughs) Um, So what would you say you've learned then from your your school, your governance roles, but also, you know, all of these other elements that that we're discussing? Oh, big question. Um, I mean... I do I do think one tends to learn what one's looking for anyway and what what I've been looking for is you know how do you how how do you circumvent the kind of messages that are coming from the top you know education is really bound up in politics and it's this huge political football and what I really love about what my governance roles and my trustee role is seeing schools that do what they were going to do anyway and if they need to call it by such and such a name they will but they will be doing what they believe is the right thing with strong moral purpose Mm. so 
the trust board um, that I'm on, what I really love about them, it's prime, primary schools, so nine primary schools. Um, they have a really strong curriculum for social justice, which works. And they have pupils there who come from really deprived backgrounds who are phenomenal. They're, they're articulate, bright, engaged. They see themselves as activists and active citizens. And the curriculum leads them through you know, deep knowledge and understanding of the world and then culminates in, you know, each um, each sort of term that culminates in a, a kind of project within their own communities to put into practice what they've learned, which I think is so powerful. Yeah. So that's given me a lot of hope wow. and excitement. Yeah. What does that look like? Tell us something they do that, that really stands out for you. So a couple of things were really interesting to me recently. One um, was um, they were reading a text around, um, I can't remember the name of the book, but I think it's something like The Last Gorilla, but it's basically about a gorilla in in a rainforest and um, sort of the circumstances under which that had become the last gorilla was around the mines locally and so the children learned what they were mining for they were mining for the crystals that go into our mobile phones and uh they learned you know not only great vocabulary wonderful storytelling and so on they mm. also learned the science of how mobile phones work and also why we need these crystals but also the economics around it and it culminated in in a campaign to try to get people in the local community to recycle and upcycle their mobile phones rather than buying into the whole thing that we need the latest thing they realize that actually that's really damaging and we should hold on to our phones for longer and we should recycle them um, and that those they can be used again for different purposes as well so they went on a big drive to collect old phones and to get them recycled really interesting and also that's real there's that, that that element of real audience that when we're doing something and and it has a real purpose mm. that we we have much more engagement and buy-in because that's something of yeah of real importance to to the the actual life of our young people that they're, they're experiencing yeah it's many things and it's also global citizenship because it's understanding how what we do here you know has an impact over there and what happens over there has an impact over here and um you know sort of tying it all together and realizing that we are all interdependent and that our consumerist behaviors can be can result in children having to go into mines and mm. gorillas losing their habitat so i think it was really really powerful and i think it also gave the children a strong sense that they could we often feel really helpless you know, and that they could actually do something that could make an impact mm. and could slow some of that down. So I, I really like that. They did a project also around homelessness and went to homeless shelter and learned about how that was run, um, which I think is also really meaningful because it's hard. London is just so packed with people who are street sleeping and it's hard to know how to kind of how to respond to that so taking children to understand what makes somebody homeless and to understand it's not a lifestyle choice mm. um, but to also understand sort of the processes of supporting people and what that would feel like you know really powerful yeah incredible school they're obviously doing some amazing work there wow 
You said in a blog recently, um, if there's one thing I think that I can do, it is to put learning, listening and unlearning before rushing in with doing. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if you could explore that a bit for us. Yeah, it's sort of all connected to the issue that I think white people are engaging more with anti-racism. You know, we had the murder of George Floyd during a pandemic where people were watching and listening more and there was a big surge of people going oh no what can I do Mm. and at the Baymed Network we had a flood of requests how can we what can we do how can we and what I've realized myself you know on myself is that, that we all have very poor racial literacy because it's not part of our education and we've had this kind of very British polite sort of let's not think about that or deal with that and I think what I mean by that statement is that we really need to rather than trying to rush in and make it nice we need to really get to grips with why is the situation the way it is what do we need to know to read to listen to learn Mm. and then to when I say about unlearning There's a lot of rush towards doing unconscious bias training, for example. And I think learning about bias is really important. But my take on it is probably a little bit different, which is I think that we need to learn to see our bias and actually bring it up (laughs) and deal with it there. So if I give an example, I was in a recruitment process. We were recruiting for a role. And one of the candidates was um, a young woman who had a three-year-old child. And a colleague said to me, she's got a three-year-old child. She'll probably want another one soon. And I'm just thinking about like maternity leave. And I'm like, okay, that's massive bias. Good Mm. that you mentioned that. Let's take that for a minute and think about it. So how are we going to stop ourselves from enacting that bias? You know, let's just think about it. Any member of staff could need to be away from work for an extended period of time whether that's for sickness for maternity Mm. for whatever so is that a deal breaker we're not going to employ anyone because they may have that potential yeah yeah because they may at some point you know so so what we did was to take that bias and to actually say it rather than going oh no I mustn't think that we said okay my bias is telling me I should find reasons why this person isn't adequate for the job because I'm worried about Whereas actually, what could we put in place as an organization to make sure that if anyone goes on maternity leave, all of our organizational data and information is captured by the organization and doesn't go away with that person, we don't collapse. You know, no one should be so heavily depended upon that if they're out of the equation, then the whole thing falls over. So that was that was a really useful way to think about learning, unlearning and learning together and sort of walking through a situation yeah that's really helpful that's a really tangible way of thinking about it I think it maybe comes down to that confidence and being happy to have the conversation yeah Yeah. and I think there's also a danger around wanting to do something to be seen to be you know to be performing allyship ticking the boxes yeah performing allyship to be on the right side because oh gosh it's so awful and now I feel really bad that people are being made you know, to feel terrible. <laughs> I don't want mm. to have a part of that. But but actually, I think a lot of the really strong allyship happens very quietly behind the scenes. It's not a, you know, it's not a black square on your social media and it's not a 
declaration of the good deeds that you've done. It's it's something that's more, um, you know, it's more a way of life. It's more akin to recycling and, <laughs> you know, the sort of <laughs> sifting your bins and things like that. It's it's a way of life that you do it quietly. Interesting. Going back to the BAME AIDS network, and you you referred to this a minute ago, but how did you respond then to that recent surge in interest in the mm. diversity equity? Yeah, I mean it's it's ongoing and it's really interesting. So we tend to we try to signpost because there's six of us and we're all in full time other employment and we do this voluntarily. We know that we can't overpromise and underdeliver. Mm. So our website has become this huge repository of um, useful things. So we tend to signpost people to the places where they can learn. And we've tried to make that as kind of multi-channel as possible, you know, so people can listen, watch, read. They can read academic things or blog posts. They can just educate themselves as they wish to. But um, we also do partner with organisations to kind of help them through what they want to do and, we might signpost them to consultants that can help them do things. And then there are other things that we will do directly with different organisations. So we're working with some of the uh, regional schools commissioners to think about how we can have a place-based approach. And we've got, I think, about 10 regional BAME ed network groups as well. So I think what we tried to do was just to keep building our own capacity to support Mm. and then signpost out and then what's interesting now is seeing all of those that put out statements and but actually how much action have they taken and how is that going? One of the other things that I do is I'm a coach on the Leeds Beckett Anti-Racist Schools Award programme. And that's really interesting as well, because what I've seen, I've spoken to about 20 schools and what I've seen mm. there are some really interesting trends that because uh, the people that get into leadership in schools are predominantly white. The people that are being tasked to lead on EDI work, so uh, equity, uh, diversity and inclusion work, are white people because they're the people who are in senior leadership. And so they're quite nervous and, again, have poor racial literacy, good intention, mm. <laughs> or it's more junior people who are people of colour who potentially won't have the budget, the influence and the power and the time to actually make people make changes. Um, So I think that's something else that we've seen as an outcome of the surge of interest is who's actually leading on this work and how equipped are they to do it. Yeah. And then also schools don't have money or time and yet to succeed in changing the uh, an organization structurally you need money and time so it is kind of a full-time role but it's being given to people who are potentially doing some teaching doing quite a lot of leadership responsibilities yeah tricky stuff tricky stuff but presumably one of the hugely vital roles of BAMED is that you're giving all of these voices uh the potential to be heard yeah we we hope so. And we're trying to do a better job also of getting them the potential to speak to each other and gain support from each other. And that's why the regional groups are, are really useful, because then they can yeah. do much more dialogue around that. Yeah. 
I was looking through your your Twitter feed recently and um, you shared a post from an Annie Murphy Paul book called The Extended Mind, The Power of Thinking Outside the Brain. And it really caught my eye because this is something that I'm quite passionate about is that we, as Ken Robinson said, we we really do need to move to think at, at, at times. And in the book, she's, she talks about extending the capacity of our brain in order to engage more deeply with the creative elements and creative learning. And the to do that, we need to really capitalise on movement, our surroundings and our relationships. Mm. And I just wondered what your take was on that and, and the concept of being more creative if we focus on the relationships we have. Yeah, I do think we've kind of, there is a develop, developing sort of shut up and sit down culture in schools. Mm. And I do, I've seen it with my own children, um, their reports of just school being so sedentary to the point that also they don't use the toilets because the toilets are are kind of scary and not nice places. So there's this kind of policing your own body so that you don't eat or drink or too much. Yeah. yeah, Or go to the toilet and the change that's happened with children who, (laughs) who are, you know, during the pandemic, learning at home, spending a lot of time at home and then being able to freely eat and use the toilet and the worry about when the lockdown ended and everyone went back to school. I heard so many young people going, Oh, but what about now? How am I going to train my body to do the right thing at the right time? Yeah. And teachers saying children just are all over the place. They're just like coming and going, wandering around. And I, I do think it is important to connect with one's body and not just think about learning as just this kind of, you know, your mind engaged in it. Mm. I don't want to go to all the kind of kinesthetic learning and open up that whole can of worms of like learning styles. But <laughs> certainly when I was doing my master's, my my um, master's dissertation was about learning styles. And I, I tested all of my children on their learning styles and I taught a class of 25 kids each in a different way through their learning styles. The big takeaway, the big takeaway I got from that was it was the journey of like, it was before metacognition was a buzzword, but what I realized Mm. was working with children, talking to them about how they learn best and getting them Mm. to really take control of their learning was the thing that made a difference. And my little class of kids, uh, I had other teachers from other disciplines coming to me and going, what's happened to your children? Because they were my form tutor group. And I was like, what do you mean? And they're so like engaged and uh, excited. They're their attainment went up across the board and I really put it down to this fact that I was in dialogue with them about their learning my learning as a researcher doing action research yeah and they became very excited by that and it's really lovely to follow them now they're all in their kind of 30s and doing amazing things and I think that had an impact. It's so it's so fabulous, isn't it, to be in touch with our students later, mm. see what where they go and what they what they do, and hopefully, you know, a little bit of something of us remains, and they yeah. they take a bit of that away with them. Maybe oh, totally. <laughs> if we're lucky. I had talking of taking a bit away with them. I had a person contact me. So I taught him when I last saw him when he was about eight. He's now in his 30s. And he contacted me and said, I'm going to be in England. I'm coming to London and I want to return that book to you. And I was like, what book? No. And he said, (laughs) he said, you know, I borrowed a book, uh, like a workbook around the Egyptians, the ancient Egyptians from you. And then I moved school and I never. And he said, I've I've moved 
you know, I've been to university, I've moved home so many times and every time I pack it in my box of things and go, I must get that back to Penny. And that's incredible. Yeah, and he came over and um, 22 years later, 22 years later to return this book. <laughs> what a gem. Yeah. What a conscientious student. You see, yeah. you've, you've ingrained a conscientious approach or in that young man. Guilt. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. So just to finish up, Penny, I did notice that you have been jamming with some famous world music groups in your past. Yes. Well, this is what you've you've told us in one of your blogs, was that you were jamming with famous world music groups. And I just thought we have to hear a little bit about that. So do you play? Do you sing? What do you do? And what was that? What was that like jamming with world music groups? Well, I don't really do anything except sing in the shower now. But um, (laughs) now at the time, so... Yeah, at the time I bought a year's open ticket uh, to travel around and I went to Turkey and to a rainbow gathering in Israel in the desert and I took my flute with me. Yeah, cut a long story short. While I was sort of bumming around backpacking, I uh, met this group and they were just sort of getting going and they played world music and they then became Israel's sort of premier world music band called Sheva. Wow, that's cool. <laughs> and you were, you were their flautist? No, I just jammed with them around <laughs> campfires and stuff. We would all just get drums and flutes and guitars and jam along. So I was not part of the group at all. <laughs> just some very dusty evenings. Sounds magical. Sounds brilliant. There's, there's not much we can't solve around a campfire, is there? I'm willing to give it a go. <laughs> Brilliant. Penny, it's fascinating to talk to you and so so much that we all need to be mindful of and understand. And I think you're absolutely vital in, in helping us do that on, on that road. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Word Up podcast from Oxford Education. To find out more about the Oxford Smart Curriculum, read the curriculum direction paper and have your say, please visit www.oxfordsecondary.com forward slash smart.